turn in your Bibles to Colossians, the book of Colossians, and we are in chapter 1. And last week was uh, an introduction to the book of Colossians since uh, we're, we're starting this, this new um, study on Wednesday nights. And we, so we did the, the introduction, but we also got into verses 1 and 2. Uh, and remember that um, Paul's authority for writing this letter was um, as an apostle. And he said it's by the will of God. And the intent there is that we would know that Paul's not an apostle because he decided to be one or determined that he was one because of all his knowledge or anything like that. But he says himself that it's by the will of God that he was an apostle. Um, and God took Paul from a life of uh, persecution of the church and made him an apostle to the Gentiles, and turning him into probably the most prolific gospel minister and writer of New Testament Scripture. And of course, this is not without difficulty in Paul's life. We should also remember that this is one of his prison epistles, right, or letters. This, this one was written from a prison prison cell in Rome, as well as the letters that he wrote to the Ephesians and to the Philippians and to Philemon. Um, and getting into the first couple of verses last week, we saw a fairly standard greeting from Paul written on behalf of himself and Timothy. Um, also important to remember is um, who he addresses this letter to, and we talked about it last week. He identified his audience as the saints that are um, at Colossae, okay, saints being Christians, all Christians are saints, according to Scripture. The church there is made up of a mix of Gentiles and Jews who had come to faith in Christ through the preaching of a man named Epaphras. Um, and Paul ended his greeting by entreating God to give them grace and peace, which is, again, another common thing that we hear from Paul in his letters. Uh, he often calls for grace and peace, um, for people. And as we'll see in the weeks to come, uh, there are, are several themes that Paul will hit on in this letter, but nothing more important, as we talked about last week, nothing more important than his focus on the Lord Jesus Christ as God himself, as being the preeminent one. And that will, that will be magnified in this letter. And tonight, um, we'll pick up the letter in verse 3 where Paul describes how he prays for the people of the church of Colossae. So follow with me as we read our text for tonight, and then we'll begin our study with a word of prayer ourselves. So Colossians chapter 3, I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, and we'll read through verse 8, even though for our study purposes, we'll probably only get through uh, halfway through verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 3 through 8. <clears throat> We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it, and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. 
He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this night, uh, for this opportunity to come, gather together to, or with the ability to physically be here and fellowship with one another. Thank you for the voices you have given us um, to sing and praise your name that way. We thank you for the gifts that people have of music to help lead us in that. And Father, we thank you for your word that now we can study and um, learn from. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to gain knowledge and the truth of you. And thank you, Father, for the fellowship of believers. Um, We praise you for it. We glorify you for it, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So, we just uh, read those verses out, um, and so I have a question based on those verses that we read. What, what do you think is the obvious overarching theme of Paul's prayer here for the church? Not what he, not what he prays for or about, but the theme and attitude uh, that everything is based on from those verses that we read. Specifically, verse 3. Thankfulness. There you go. Yeah, thankfulness, thanksgiving. That is kind of the the overarching theme of of what he's writing about here. And it begins with his attitude of thankfulness uh, in prayer. There are a lot of things here that Paul's uh, going to mention and pray about, but he does so under the banner of thanksgiving. Um, and, And it's the attitude of his heart is thanksgiving towards God. And David was a man who spent a lot of time thanking God. And in a song from 1 Chronicles 16.8, David said, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. And here we see Paul doing just that. Right? He's, he's writing this letter to the people, uh, and he's, he's also in this short little portion of this letter is making known the deeds of God as they relate to the Colossian Christians. Paul is doing what he commanded the church at Ephesus to do as a practice for daily living as Christians when he said that they should be giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ in Ephesians 5.20. You see, giving thanks to God should be an always thing. That's how Paul is describing it. Uh, it's It's a... for everything practice. Always giving thanks and for everything. That is what we should be doing. And of course, always in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? That's why we end our prayers the way we do, in Jesus' name. It's not just something we say. We're, we're actually commanded to do this in Scripture. That's how, we, that's how we pray. It's in the name of Jesus. So it's not just a thing we say. And so here Paul is showing by example that he's living his life and conducting his care for the church through prayer and thanksgiving to God in the name of Jesus. And I hope when we get to the end of this, too, that we will have learned something about what it means to pray for one another as believers. Um, and I think, we can, I think we can do that if we pay attention to this. Uh, he also seems to indicate in his letter here that this prayer that he's talking about includes Timothy. 
includes some form of corporate prayer with Timothy. He's, he's already mentioned at the beginning of this, and we covered it last week, that he's writing on, for himself, on behalf of himself, and on behalf of Timothy. And notice he says here, we always thank God. Okay, he, either he knows Timothy is doing this on his own, in his own private prayer life, or he's referring to something they both do together. Either way, Timothy is partnered in this. Timothy is doing the same thing he's doing, which is giving thanks to God and praying uh, in their prayers for this church. We can see other letters from him where he talks about his prayers for the churches. It's a major focus uh, of his Christian life and ministry. And notice he takes the time to tell people he's praying for them. He doesn't just pray for them and not mention it. He's telling them, I'm praying for you, right? It's a, it's a question for us to think about in our own lives. Do you make it a point to tell people you're praying for them? Or do you just pray for them? It is good to, to pray for people, is it not? But do you ever think about maybe telling them that you're praying for them? There's some purpose in telling people that we're praying for them. Have you ever had someone or been involved in maybe you're sick or a really difficult time in your life and you were comforted knowing that your brothers and sisters in Christ were praying for you? But, but you don't know unless they tell you. I mean, we can assume it. We should be able to assume that we are praying for one another. But when a brother or sister in Christ says, I'm praying for you, that's, that's uplifting, that's encouraging. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's encouraging them in that. Um, so I would encourage you to do the same thing. And not only to tell people you're praying for them, but to do what Paul does here. He's, he's telling them exactly what he's praying for. Right? That's important to know too. And so again, the apostle, the apostle Paul is leading here by example in the practice of praying for the saints. And quickly, five other biblical examples from the life of Paul regarding this subject. The first one is in Romans 1, 8 through 10, where he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. And look, look for the pattern here in, in his prayers for people. Philippians 1, 3 and 4, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. 2 Timothy 1, 3, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. He's telling Timothy this. Philemon 1, 4, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. And back to Ephesians 1, verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. As I was looking through this, it dawned on me, I don't know how often I, when I pray for people, do I pray and thank God for them. Thank God for them being in my life, or that I know them, or that, that they are believers, they are fellow heirs with me. I don't know that I think about, about doing that, but we see a pattern from Paul that he also prays, um, giving thanks for them. Not just for their needs or their sicknesses, but for them, for their existence, for their, um, the fact that they are also adopted sons or daughters through Jesus Christ. Remember we said that the theme here, the overarching theme was thanksgiving, but we also want to look at Paul's example of the kinds of things that we should be uh, focused on being thankful for when it comes to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And in the case of the Colossian church, 
uh, as well as these, the other churches that he prays for, Paul's not just thankful to God for them, but for certain things about them. In, in, verses, uh, in verse 4 and the first part of verse 5, we see the, the evidence Paul is using to conclude that he can and should be thankful for a particular thing regarding the lives of these people. But before we look at the evidence, though, I want to look at the conclusion. Okay, so, so let's, let's skip the evidence, which is verse 4. Let's skip verse 4 for a second. And look at the conclusion with me in the first part of verse 5. Okay, and then we'll come back. So verse 5, the first part of verse 5 says, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So based on those 10 words, what conclusion has Paul come to about these people? Just from those ten, first 10 words in verse 5, what conclusion has Paul come to about these people? Okay, they have faith in Jesus Christ. They are believers. They are Christians. Okay, they have been born again to a living hope. And you see, verse 4 is the evidence. It's separated from verses 3 and 5 by commas. And when we, when we skip it briefly, we can see the conclusion based on the evidence. Okay, if you, if you read verse 3 and then skip to verse 5, it makes the most sense and makes it most clear what he's thankful for. So let's do that. Let's look at verse 3 and then skip to verse 5 and see um, what it sounds like. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Okay, do you see it? Paul's been able to conclude this reality. This is a reality, their salvation. It's, it's true, and the evidence proves it. They are indeed saved. And when he says, laid up for you in heaven, he's speaking like, like Peter does, right? With the, with the language of true salvation. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. And listen for the similarities there. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. And remember what, what Paul has just said here. Uh, the conclusion is because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So in particular, that phrase, laid up for you in heaven. <clears throat> Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You hear the similarities there in this, in this language that's being used. So, Going back to verse 4 then, let's look at the evidence that led Paul to this conclusion. If you'll notice, he's really using the criteria that we just finished learning about in our study in 1 John. Remember, John gave many things as proof that someone was a genuine believer. And here we see Paul using two of John's proofs or points of evidence to conclude he's writing to true Christians. 
Look at verse 4 with me here in, in Colossians 1. Okay, now we're, so we've seen the conclusion that they're believers. Let's look at the evidence. He says here in verse 4, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Can you tell me here, what, what are the two proofs of salvation in that verse? What was that? Okay, their faith in Jesus Christ, that's the first one. And the love for all the saints, or love for the brethren. Yeah, those are the two proofs. Those are the, the, that's the evidence that Paul is going by to come to the conclusion that these people have a hope for them in heaven. They are believers. So what did, what did John say? We just finished our study in 1 John. What did John say about faith in Jesus as evidence? Looking back at 1 John, uh, if you want to turn to 1 John now, we'll be just looking at five verses there in a couple of different categories. But the first one's in 1 John chapter 2, verses 22 through 23. So let's be reminded, even though this was several weeks ago, let's be reminded what we um, learned about these proofs. 1 John 2, 22 through 23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Okay, then over to um, chapter 4 in 1 John. Verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So these are, these are the things that John said, John listed as, a way to know if someone is truly saved. And Paul is using that in his, in his determination and conclusion that the people he's writing to in Colossae are genuine believers. He's going by the same criteria that John used. And that first one there is regarding their faith in Jesus Christ. That's the number one thing, their faith in Jesus Christ. Well, what about the second proof? What did John say about love for the brethren as evidence? In, we're still in, in 1 John now. Chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says, Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. And then down to 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, it says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. Okay, again, so we have these, the evidence that Paul is using. Here are the same things that John was talking about that prove someone's a believer. And Paul is using that to conclude that the, the believers in Colossae, or that the people he's writing to in Colossae are genuine believers. And then even there's one more verse there in 1 John I want to look at because it combines both of those, both of those proofs in one verse. And that's 1 John 5.1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. See, John's combining both those things in that, in that one verse right there. The faith in Jesus Christ and a love for those who have been born of Him, which is the brethren, the saints. Okay, so we have both, both combined there. Those are the criteria or points of evidence that Paul used with the Colossian people. Since he heard about their love for Christ and 
their faith in Christ and their love for the saints, he concluded they had the same hope that he had. Right? They, the hope of salvation. Paul, for sure, certainly has the hope of salvation. He's here concluding these people also have that. And therefore, his response is thankfulness. His response is, thank you, God, for saving these people. Thank you for what you've done in their life. And so, you know, think of, think of an example of a person that you know, maybe, uh, maybe a friend or maybe even a child of yours, someone that you're thankful to God for saving, perhaps someone that you prayed for for a long time, uh, and now they are saved. Do you remember what it was like when you heard of it, when they, when they told you that they have professed faith in Christ, that, that God had saved them? Um, it's, it's something to rejoice over, and that's what Paul's doing. He's rejoicing over the salvation of these people. That is something that is near to his heart. Uh, and if, you, if in your own life you've had that experience, um, you know how thankful you are. Uh, you're so thankful because you know the alternative. The alternative, if someone doesn't come to faith in Christ, is that they are still a child of the devil, and they have an eternity in hell to look forward to. And this goes to what Brandon was saying earlier about our our desire that we should have a desire for the lost, uh, a desire that others would know salvation like, like we do through Christ. And because you have, and this is the, the reason for Paul's joy is because they have he, this same salvation in common with him. They are, they are co-heirs with Christ, right? They are fellow believers. And now, uh, on the joyful side of it, you know what awaits them in heaven. Paul knows what awaits him in heaven. So as he thinks about that in his own life, he's also thinking about that in, in their life. What a joy that you, you think about these people that you love and know that they are going to experience the exact same thing when Christ returns for his church. That's something to be joyful about. And that's what's going on here with Paul. He's overjoyed. He's so thankful to God for what the work that God has done in these people as he's seen the evidence of it. He's heard of it from Epaphras. He knows that, uh, that he is writing to believers. And I don't think we get excited enough, do we, about salvation. We can, you know, we know we're saved and we go about and we're excited about growing in our faith, um, but sometimes do we forget the joy of our salvation? That's why David prayed that God would restore that in his life. We can, because of life, we can get down. We can sort of lose that hope sometimes. We can forget we need to be reminded. Well, that's why Paul is so joyful, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, he says. He's joyful because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. And hope that the Greek word that he used there, it really means to anticipate with pleasure. That's, the kind of, that's what he's talking about there with hope, the, to anticipate with pleasure. Not a word indicating, I wish this will happen. I, I really wish, I really hope it will happen, right, as if it might not. This is, to the contrary, it's a, a confident expectation of a truth that brings joy, though it's not yet a reality, right? Christ has not yet come back for us. We are not yet in eternity with Him, but we know it's coming. We know we already possess that in reality. And so there's a joy in that. You know, think of it like a child who's waiting for Christmas to come, right? There's hope for Christmas. It, perhaps it's several months away. But it will come. There's no way around it, right? It's not a hope, meaning December 25th might not get here. Um, 
but it's an absolute knowledge of and an eager, confident expectation of its coming. Right? The kids, they know it's coming. They don't doubt that it's coming. It's, so it's, again, not a hope like a wish, like it might not happen. The fact is, it hasn't yet come, but that doesn't change the truth that it is coming. It is a reality. And that's how salvation is for us. We, our, our Lord has not come back for us yet, but it is a sure reality for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And Paul said this hope was laid up for them in heaven. That is, it is reserved for them. We read about that a few minutes ago in Peter, in First Peter. It's kept for them in heaven. And if something is reserved or kept, it has to be done so by someone else, uh, and that is God. Okay? In case they or we are ever unsure about how our salvation is preserved, the Bible speaks directly about it, just like we read in 1 Peter. Jude writes about the fact that salvation is kept by God. Uh, in the introduction to his letter, Jude 1.1 says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in, the fa- God, in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, or by Jesus Christ, depending on your translation. It's kept, not by us. When Paul says in our passage that it is laid up for them in heaven, it's there because that is where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father, keeping all that the Father has given him. How can we as Christians fight against the tendency then to have a lack of assurance of salvation? How can we combat that in our lives if someone struggles with lack of assurance? How do we fight against that? Okay, so Ephesians 6, the the armor of God, um, the helmet of salvation, the whole list there are ways that we can be assured of salvation. Okay, what else? Other thoughts on that? When you see God answering your prayers, okay, so you see God working in your life. You see the reality um, that God is active in your life. Okay, that can help with assurance. What else? Right. Absolutely. How great is it to be able to rest in the knowledge of our salvation in Jesus Christ? To be able to rest knowing that I don't have to do something to hold on to it. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. For sure. You know, I think one of the, I think all those answers are true, and there's probably many more uh, ways that we fight against the tendency to have a lack of assurance. 
the most important way that we fight against that is, is knowledge of the Word of God, knowledge of God Himself. Because when we know what God has said about salvation and about how it comes about, meaning it is all a work of God, then we can come back to being reassured. We, we start to waver and, and are shaken when we forget those things and when we begin to believe that I have to do something to keep it. Um, so it's, it's something that we have to be really careful of. If, if I think I can lose salvation, what's the logical conclusion I will come to? Any person that thinks they can, they're saved, but they can lose their salvation, what is the next logical conclusion from that? What was that? Okay, so, yeah, so if they believe that they can lose their salvation, okay, so maybe they're at the point where they think they've lost it, what is the next logical conclusion that they would have to come to? They can regain it, okay? How would they regain it? Doing something. That's a problem, right? We begin to see the problem with, with that kind of thinking. If I think I can lose my salvation, the next logical conclusion is, how do I get it back? Or, i got to get it back. Um, how do I do that? Well, usually what people end up doing is by law-keeping, right? I have to do X, Y, and Z, to get my salvation back. Or, if they believe they can lose their salvation, they think they have to do X, Y, and Z all along to keep it. That defeats, that's, that's anti-biblical. It goes against what we're reading in Scripture that is kept for us in heaven. So we, we begin to forget that salvation is by grace, through faith. It's a gift of God. It's not of works. And there's a reason for that, so that no one can boast. So we don't want to fall into that place of having a lack of assurance of salvation. The way to combat that is by all the things that were mentioned here, and mainly by going to the Word of God. If I feel like I've lost my salvation or I begin to think that way, I need to come back here and see how, did I, how was I saved in the first place and what does the Scripture say about my salvation. And there are many places you can go in the Scriptures and see that you don't lose your salvation. It's, it's a work of God. It's kept for you by God. Um, and the Scripture says that He will lose none. Okay? So we, we want to have assurance of salvation, and we can. As we just went through the whole study in 1 John, we can know that we have eternal life. And Paul would not be able to rejoice or be thankful if uh, the Colossian people were not professing faith in Christ. He wouldn't be able to be thankful. Um, because according to Jesus, he said, Jesus said about himself that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And so if they had not professed this faith in Christ, Paul would not be able to come to the conclusion that he did, that there's a hope laid up for them in heaven. Faith in Christ alone must be professed, or there can be no salvation. We know this, this absolutely. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. So again, how can we be assured? We have to go back to the Word of God. What does God say about salvation? And you, you can hear in here, you can hear the confidence that Paul has. Based on these evidences, he is confident of the salvation of these people. 
And Paul indeed does pray for all the churches, as he, he does have a great burden for all the churches. We see over and over in his letters the fact that he addresses the churches with, with good things sometimes. He's praising them for their obedience to Christ sometimes. Sometimes he's going after them for their disobedience. Uh, but he has a lot to pray for. Um, it's, this, it's his godly spiritual responsibility, and he knows it and feels it deeply. And after going um, over a huge list of the ways that he had been persecuted and beaten and shipwrecked, left for dead multiple times, etc., his list goes on and on uh, in Corinthians, he has this to say about something he felt every day in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, He says, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Well, what, if you're thinking about the Apostle Paul, what would bring daily pressure and anxiety to Paul regarding all the churches? What could possibly bring, be something that he has to consider every day about the churches? False teachers, absolutely. Right? He, he's so concerned about false teaching that he mentions it, if you read Paul's writings, he mentions it in almost every letter this concern about false teaching uh, or people believing lies and, and what is untrue. And we'll see in this letter as well um, how he must deal with some of that, even in the Colossian church. But here, this, is, this first portion is all about thanksgiving, Thankful, his thankfulness to God for the salvation that he's brought about in these people. And just quickly here, we should also know that Paul was not afraid to ask for prayer. This, this is not just a one-way thing where we all expect uh, the apostle to pray for us or the elders or pastors to pray for us. It's, it goes the other way as well. It's among all the believers. And Paul was not afraid to ask. In 2 Thessalonians 3.1, he says, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. And then Hebrews 13, 18, he says, pray for us. Well, I say he says, I do believe Paul is the author of Hebrews, even though uh, we don't really know that for sure. Anyway, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. Okay, so it should go the other way as well. We, we should be praying for our pastors. We should be praying for our elders. And, and we all shouldn't be afraid to ask for prayer from one another. As Paul has given um, an example here, um, I want us to also remember that we can learn how to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ by looking at these examples of prayer in the Scriptures. We don't, we don't have to wonder how to pray. Have you ever been praying and wondered, I just don't know what to say. I don't know what to pray for for these people, for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Unless they've told you a specific request they have beyond that, you know, we don't, we don't always know what to pray for. But I want to show you another example in Scripture, if you'll turn to Ephesians 1, as we wrap it up here. Ephesians 1, and like I said at the beginning, I hope that, that through this we can learn a little something about how to pray for one another as Christians. In Ephesians <clears throat> chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 15 through 21, and I listen through this of the examples of some of the things that we should be praying for for one another. 
Ephesians 1, starting at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, sound familiar? I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So, what are some ways there that we can learn to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ? What, what are some things you heard in there that you can now say, you know what, I can pray for that for my brother or sister in Christ? Okay, enlightening the eyes of their heart. Right. The spirit of wisdom. Revelation of knowledge in Him. Okay. What was that? The hope of His calling. All right. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's a quite a list there. And, and this isn't even the only example of prayer that we have from Paul in the Scripture or other people in Scriptures that we can learn from on how to pray for one another. But those are important things, right? The spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge, the, the eyes of the heart to be enlightened, to know more about the hope we have in eternity, the riches of our inheritance, to know more about God's power and salvation. And we can see there's a major theme in all that prayer in Ephesians. It, it's that we would desire more knowledge about our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Think about that as something we should pray for for one another. Not only that we would know more, but that we would pray for the same for others. We, we should be praying for this for ourselves, to increase in knowledge and wisdom in the Lord, and, and that He would continually show us and remind us of the greatness of the the resurrection of Jesus Christ and, and the hope that we have in eternity. Um, and so this is a good example that, that we can really learn from how to pray for one another. And so when we, when we pray for this, when we pray for knowledge for ourselves and for, for our brothers and sisters in Christ, that our knowledge of God would increase, what kind of things can, can be helped in our lives by knowing more about God and His Word? What kind of things can be helped? Was that? There you go. Everything. <laughs> everything. Everything can be helped, right? Fear, anxiety, suffering, ongoing sin, loss, knowing His will. You name it, the whole list can go on and on and on. All the things that we as Christians, we as human beings living on this earth in this fallen world continually deal with, all of it can be helped by knowledge of God, more knowledge of God, more knowledge of His Word, because this is the truth. There, there is no other truth. This is the truth. Why would we go somewhere else as Christians to find out how to handle issues in our lives? We can go to the Word of God. It is useful for us. 
So let's follow Paul's example of thankfulness to God uh, as we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would be thankful for them, for them, and for their salvation, that we would be thankful to God for our own salvation over and over again. We can never say thank you enough for what God has done in our lives. So let's pray accordingly, like Paul does, when he prays for these people, as he thinks about them as their, and their profession of faith in Christ and their love for the brothers and sisters, he is so thankful for them. So let's, let's learn from that. And, and next time, we'll continue in the rest of verse 5 and moving forward from there. And it's still going to be on this subject of Paul's prayer of thankfulness. There's a lot in it. So we'll, we'll continue on that next time. Let's close in prayer for tonight, though. Father in heaven, we're grateful to be here again. Thank you, Lord. Uh, As we saw Paul giving thanks here, we thank you for the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. As we think about our brothers and sisters that are around us who we have fellowship with, Lord, we thank you for them. We thank you for saving them. We thank you for adopting them into the family as you did us. We're so grateful for it, Lord, that we have together this hope laid up for us in heaven, being kept in heaven by you. What an amazing thing to know and remember and rejoice in, not only for ourselves, but to be thankful for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, along those lines that we would then, that would spill over into a desire to share the gospel with other people, that they too may come to faith in Christ and a love for the brethren and a hope laid up for them in heaven. Lord, help us to be faithful in that. We praise you and thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.